0: and it's from Matthew 22, 30, verses 37 through 39. Three verses in one little short, concise statement. Jesus replied, and I didn't preface this by looking at the verses prior, but I have to imagine that this is in response to his followers and disciples saying, Lord, what is it that we do? What is it, how do we follow you? How do we become followers of you? We love you, we believe in you. How do we become followers? Love your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The word of the Lord. So, Pastor Oshida, we just met this morning, and very briefly for about 30 seconds, and I told you that I felt I already know you. And I'll tell you why. Um, And I have a couple of gifts for you. Um, First of all, let me preface this by saying that uh, I first got to know you on a Global Immersion Project. I don't know what we call these things, webinars or workshops. And of course you brought yourself and your heart and your soul and your work in in connecting with white peacemakers. And I will tell you this, that uh, four years ago in Palestine and Israel, another dear friend, Reverend Ben McBride, we were there with the Global Immersion Project. Um, gave us a little what I would call a calling out speech on a bus ride back to the hotel on our last night. And I left there, uh, they left early and I I thanked Ben for calling me out. I've learned something in those four years and I'm going to tell you what I learned. I got to know you in that webinar. (laughs) Then you said you wrote a book and it wasn't published yet. But I ordered it. So the book comes, and it says, Dear White Peacemakers. And it has 26 chapters. So it's a book with 26 chapters. So I read it. I just start curiously, and I plow through this book. And I began to understand that it was not a book of 26 chapters. It was a letter of love. Not a love letter in the traditional sense, but a collection of letters of love and a combined letter. And it wasn't to dear white peacemakers, it was to dear Bob, 73-year-old, white male, European descent, linear thinker, aspiring apprentice of that dark-skinned Palestinian carpenter from the hills of Galilee. So I read this, and it invaded my heart. You invaded my heart, Oshita. You wrecked my heart, and then you forgave me. And from the very beginning, your Dakota land acknowledgement, to the very end, you continued to invade my heart, to wreck my heart, and to forgive me. So back to, I thank Ben for calling me out. I was going to say, you know, this whole book called me out. I began to realize that this book didn't call me out. This was a black woman, a pastor, calling out to me to join her and the rest of beloved community in crafting, picking up the broken pieces of that beautiful vase that we call beloved community. And beginning the work, to the endless work likely to put that vessel back together with golden cement, the cement of love. And I will say that you you called out to me and exposed your humanity, and you said you would see mine. You called out to me to see your dignity, and you promised to see mine, and you Called out to me with your feeling of being the image of God, and you recognized mine. So you have connected with me in unbelievable ways. And I hope I can call you friend. And as a friend, I have a gift, two gifts for you. The two gifts are you spoke in one of the early chapters about food being um, a central theme or a central a core way of connecting with family, with friends with enemies, with with the world, and you talked about what? Gumbo, you talked about gumbo. So what I have for you today, first gift, is rice. Huh? I didn't mix the rice in, and I won't take them all out, but there's two of, two of these in a much larger, I made gumbo yesterday, and I'm gonna, I made gumbo, and I, t- true confession, um, this is based on a Polish recipe. So this, this, this. no, I want judgment. I, I, I'm going to humbly, I, I want judgment, and I, here's what I want. I'm, I'm gifting this to you so that you can help me refine my recipe to become a more perfect gumbo, okay, a more perfect gumbo. That's gift number one. Oh, and by the way, because it's a Polish recipe, I brought along, in, in case it doesn't get spicy enough for you, I brought along this. Okay. (laughs) Okay, and then the second gift is among the many questions I have to open. Oh, here we go. Among the many questions you asked uh this one wasn't really a question, but chapter ten, if I don't make it home safely. You close that with this. But if one day I won't, white peacemaker, I'm counting on you. So my second gift is how you reach me, when you need me, because I will be there for you. And lastly, you asked many questions. You asked questions in chapter 19 and 20 and 22, I'm sorry, love letter 19 and 20 and 22, and chapter 13, who told you you had to do this alone? Will you take on the yoke of anti-racism race peacemaking? The yoke, obviously referring to the fact that this will not be an easy journey. Will you, Bob, take on the yoke of anti-racism peacemaking? Yes, I will. Please welcome Pastor Oshita Moore. They're all disposable containers, so we don't have to
1: bring them back. <laughs> I'm wired. Okay. How do I follow that? What? I am A2 on the Enneagram, so that just filled me up for like the rest of the summer. All right. Um, Gosh, I feel like there's just been so much goodness, so much Jesus-centered goodness this morning that I'm just like, all right, I'll just uh, say a few things and send send us on our way. All right. Well, first I wanna say good morning, Genesis, and I just wanna commend you and thank you for loving your pastor well enough to give him a sabbatical and encouraging him to take care of himself. Um, I have been in, in some form of church leadership for like 20 something years. And um, I can tell the health of a congregation not by the activities that they do or the uh, theology that the pastor teaches or that they teach their children or their budget line item. I can tell the health of a congregation by how they care for each other and how they care for their pastors and how they honor the humanity of every person that calls um, that church their home, their church family. And um, giving your pastor this time um, invites him to be more fully human. Um, I also have spent the past I would say 15 something years uh, talking about humanity and asking ourselves what does it mean to be fully human? Um, what does it mean to follow Jesus who was a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man Um, human moving through this world, teaching us what does it look like to be, um, to thrive and to be deeply and wholeheartedly connected to God in such a way that 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 connection, that life, that love flows out of us to others, even if it makes some people and some leaders of systems really, really uncomfortable. What does it look like for us to take Jesus's words and say, maybe he really meant it, Like maybe when he said, this is what my kingdom is like and you should follow me. And then he lived this weird, peculiar uh, countercultural way that he was like, yeah, I'm actually asking you to do that thing too. And what does it mean for us to take Jesus's invitation into the culture of the kingdom of God as peacemakers? That we get to embody the peacemaking ethic of the kingdom of God right where we are. What does it mean for us to take that identity as peacemakers and live every day as those who make peace right in front of us? And that is really like where my spiritual formation just really solidified, where when I went through a massive season of deconstructing all the things that I was raised up in, in the evangelical Southern church, and I started stripping all that stuff away, and I really got down to brass tacks, like what is this that I believe, and do I still even believe that? Is that good enough to carry me through the rest of my life? The thing that remained was Jesus, the kingdom of God, and his peacemaking ethic. And so from that moment, I began calling myself a peacemaker because that's what Jesus called his, his disciples. That he, that's what he invited us into to be peacemakers for we will be called children of God. And from that work, I have had to kind of work through um, this, this uh, separating peacemaking from all the things that we think make a peacemaker like all of the ways that they can kind of get out there and get in the midst of issues like we often think of peacemakers as people who have a particular kind of personality type and they smell like lavender and they wear kimonos and they're gentle and voice and they never say a bad thing about anybody at least to their face and then But then we also think of peacemakers as these people who like go to Palestine and become like human shields and have PhDs and things like diplomacy and actual peacemaking or conflict resolution. But the real thing that I have learned is that Jesus was just a a, a human person inviting a ragtag group of everyday people into this work of making peace right where they are. And so I had to ask myself okay, if I'm gonna, if I'm never gonna smell like lavender and I can sometimes wear kimono and i say a lot of bad things about people sometimes that i have to ask for forgiveness for and i at that season when i was going through that i was like had three little ones there was no way i was going to do all of these this work i mean honestly conflict resolution for me looked like shutting down a tantrum in the target aisle with a capri sun that i stole off the shelf like that was really what peacemaking looked like for me and i had to know that that was enough and by the grace of God, it was, and it, it is, and it had been a way for me to root my faith journey in something more inclusive and invitational. Because of doing that work though, as a woman in this particular body, sociologists call it a social location, I'm a black woman, I am in an interracial marriage, my husband is white, and I'm raising biracial children, part of peacemaking for me taking that calling to be a peacemaker meant that I had to wrestle with things that I never wanted to talk about. Like I had to talk about what does it look like for me to be dark skinned in predominantly white spaces. What does it mean to be somebody that was formed in a Southern tradition by Black Southern people who love food and love seasoning? That is so important. And how do I go to a potluck and be in community with people who like say, Oh, just a dash of salt will do. How do I do that? How do I do that? How do I move through a world fully human, believing that God breathed life into me and looked at my brown body and said, it is good in a world that constantly says, it is not, and it does not matter. And in doing that work and becoming a peacemaker for myself in my social location, I started to have a lot of conversations around race. And I started to realize that one of the greatest areas for me to live out my peacemaking ethic is around anti-racism, It's around authentic, challenging, yet loving conversations about race and race conciliation. So the rest of our time today, I'm going to invite you into my journey of building what I call anti-racism peacemaking the mirroring of my core identity when everything or my core convictions when everything was stripped away and the things that remained was the kingdom of God the peacemaking ethic of Jesus and the love of God when those things remained and then I brought in this important conversation how did I hold those things in tension how did I have integrity Because one of the things I think is most important for us when we are doing this deconstructing work is that we know who God made us to be in the body that God gave us, in the sexuality that God gave us. And we say, that is good. And from that goodness, we get to create good in the world. So I wanted to ask myself a question. How do I, as a black peacemaker, engage in spaces with white peacemakers and never ask them to question whether or not it is good all around? So I'm gonna start our time with reading the first letter from my, mess, from my book. I don't even know if I should do this after Bob and his like sweet, <laughs> sweet introduction, but here we go. So this is our invitation to this conversation. Come to the table, dear white peacemakers, I have begun this introduction letter three times and deleted it three times. I keep seeing your faces. Mostly I keep seeing your eyes and the emotions you bring to this conversation on race at this moment of racial uprising. I see the fear. I see the confusion. I see the shame. I see the defensiveness. I see the fog of disinterest and the storm of discomfort. I see you. I also worry about you. You watched George Floyd murdered before your eyes by a white police officer. You watched a viral video of Ahmaud Arbery hunted down and shot by a white father and his son. You held your phones in your hands, doom scrolling Twitter on June 6, 2021, as white supremacists stormed the U S Capitol, holding Confederate flags and erecting a noose. And these are just the racialized events I can think of within the past six months. With over 400 years of the violence of white supremacy interwoven into American DNA, I am sure your eyes may have been filled with terror in response to learning about hundreds of instances of racism, the lynchings, the expulsion of black residents to all to create all white communities, the silence of the white evangelical church and so many more acts of harm towards black indigenous and people of color, BIPOC. America is sick with the sin of white supremacy. And when I sit across from you, white peacemaker, and look into your eyes, I clearly see how overwhelmed you are. What you do in the dawn of racial awareness, when the scales fall from your eyes and you are beginning to see clearly matters, I'm here to be your honest friend, your cheerleader, your companion, your sounding board. As I process how I've come to terms with my calling to practice peace as a black woman, I hope the Holy Spirit meets you and inspires you as a white person to be a peacemaker for anti-racism. I hope you know that here you are loved and wanted. So that is our invitation to consider our calling into anti-racism peacemaking. I wanna tell you a little bit about how this formed for me. So a few years ago, I led a group. Um, I work at Woodland Hills um, as one of their teaching pastors, as well as I partner with my husband in leading and pastoring roots Covenant church in the Midway. And so one of the roles that I get to serve at at Woodland Hills is I get to serve um, in classes of encouraging people around race and peacemaking. And so I took a group, you'll get to see them here, I took a group for a week-long trip down south to go to historic places um, that were important to the civil rights movement. So we went down south and we visited, um, we went to, we visited the Dr. King Center and we visited uh, Michael Ferguson's memorial and uh, we we went to the Legacy Museum where we stood underneath these concrete pillars with names of black innocent people who were lynched and, and through the whole trip, um, I I really had this desire to help them get it. See, I had been spending time with them for several several weeks. But by this point, where I was re- we were reading books together. We were having dialogue. I was answering the myriad of why's. Why are we having this conversation? Doesn't it feel more divisive? Is it really that hard? Why is this important to me as a white person? What do I even have to offer in this conversation as a white person? And so I had spent the the lot la- the first seven weeks with that group, just fielding all these questions, kind of laying um, a very good, in my, in my sense, I mean, I, I wrote the curriculum, so I hope it was good, found, you know, educational foundation for why we're doing this work, right? And so my goal on that trip was just to bring it home. Like we were gonna to go to the places we talked about. And I, with this group, just was unrelenting. Like I was like, okay, we are listening to this podcast on the drive. We're getting to this place, we're gonna walk around. You will be silent and reflective. Then we will come, we will talk about all those things. You will be honest about the the things you saw. Then we're gonna go, we're gonna get away with the Lord, we're gonna be convicted. Confession, confession, confession. Then we're gonna come back and do it again. So seven days of this over and over and over again with this group. And at the end of the trip, Well, let me back up. Halfway through the trip, I was just getting so overwhelmed by the things that I was seeing alongside this group of white peacemakers as a black woman watching, seeing all of these plaques and all of these statues and reading all these stories of horrific harm done to people who look like me, who looked like my father, who looked like my brother. And so I noticed one night sitting by a lake um, that all of the violence and the bitterness and the retributive anger um, that I was experiencing as I was watching these things was getting on the inside of me. And that that unrelenting, do it again, do it again, stay in it, stay in it. That was just me kind of just working out all of my hurt feelings with that group. I sat by that lake and I texted my girlfriend, one of my friends, and I said, "Hey." I am no, I I don't feel peace doing this work. And I feel like I'm doing something wrong. And I can't seem to separate the violence of what I'm experiencing from the violent feelings inside of me. And I feel like I'm putting it out on them. And she prayed for me. And then the next day I just jumped right back into it. More, 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 do it, do it, do it. Until the very end of the trip, uh, it was the very last day, it was, our, it was our one travel day, it was like 14 hours in the van um, and making our way back up to the Twin Cities. And we get um, to this gas station and I, and I am like, done, I need powdered sugar donuts, I need a frappuccino, I need a stat. So I go into the convenience store and I get all my things and I'm walking out and I'm still just over it. Like I am just like, okay, I will never talk about race in a predominantly white space ever, ever again. Like I just can't handle it. And I'm walking out and I see um, one of the women um, in this picture, I see her just leaned up against the wall of the convenience store holding her phone and just weeping. And I said to myself, good. She feels right now the way I have felt my whole life. And then the Lord convicted me and said, she is not feeling like she is beloved because of the things she's seen this week. And she is not gonna go back to do this work with any joy or any hope because her core humanness has been attacked this whole week. And my friend, Sarah, does this thing where she wakes up in the morning and she says, Mother God, how do you want to mother me? And I felt that prayer just spring up in me. I said, Mother God, how can I mother her? How can I push it past past all of my anger and fear How do I acknowledge that that can be a problematic act for me as a black woman stepping in and hugging a white person, especially after a hard week of talking about race, but how can I show her belovedness? So I went and I hugged her and kept whispering over her that she's gonna be okay, that we're gonna be okay, that I'm praying for her and all of that anger and violence and retributive desire just broke in me the peace ethic of Jesus flooded in. And I realized that for me, doing this work, I have to do it a little differently. So here are some of the reasons why I was do it, do it, do it. See, we have been kind of formed as a church to think about race as racial reconciliation, racial reconciliation. And this is basically the idea of like, as long as we're really good, as long as we like love black people and we have a few black people or people of color in our church and we like, you know, maybe we have like a Martin Luther King Sunday or maybe we sing in in, in different languages. Um, As long as we don't have, you know, um, active and resistance towards them, as long as we're polite and kind to them, as long as you see me hugging them in the narthax, then we are a reconciled church. And see, that was the thing that I struggled the most with, that I wanted to kind of break in that group, is this equating race conciliation or us actually being a unified community as just us being kind to each other. You see, because kindness doesn't break the systems that prevent me from feeling like it is good in this body. So there are some problems with racial reconciliation, just in the way that we have traditionally been taught about it. It's just we are one in Christ. You know, we are, there, there, there's no difference in races. We all bleed red. You know, it focuses on personal posture as an indication of internalized racism. That's all we talk about is, are you in personal good relationship with people of color? It ignores or downplays systemic racism and it creates obstacles for the church to truly be multicultural. Because if I am, as a black congregant, experience something like we all communally experience when we watch George Floyd die, the very first thing that so many black, so many uh, uh, disciples of color think is where am I gonna go to church? Like when I go to church this next Sunday, are they going to say something about what we just saw? Are they going to acknowledge the the, the communal pain and the specific pain of the people of color in the space? Are we going to invite the Lord in to give us grief, to grieve us and invite the Lord in to help us lament? Are we going to invite the Lord in to show us how we can be peacemakers with this area? hands down, is the common thing I hear from people of color when something happens like this. I want to go to church, but I don't want to be at a church after something like this happens and they don't say a single thing, because that means they don't care about my lived experience. So that was my big bad of that trip. I don't want these people to only think of race as racial reconciliation. And so what I did was, um, well, hold on, I'm going to just share this slide real quick. See, racial reconciliation invites us into a posture of grace towards one another because disciples of Jesus should maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That is important. That is so, like, if there's one thing I want want us to hold from racial reconciliation is this bond, this unity in in the spirit and and the bond of peace. We want that. We don't wanna get rid of that, but that can't be enough. So here's what I did. I swung the other way. So on the trip, The thing that I focused with them was anti-racism. Like, I was like, I want you to focus on the systems. I want you to focus on your complicity to the system. I want you to have conversations with me where you say, you know, I'm just white. Or like, I'm a Karen. I want you to take on some of the shame of the system because I have lived with the shame of the system. That tends to be a byproduct, maybe not the maybe not the primary goal of it, but that tends to be a byproduct when we only focus on our anti-racism work um, as systemic. And so, here are three problems that I noticed. So the first one is it focuses on systemic change. It's really really good uh, around that um, as uh, as uh, secondary or no as primary to interper- uh, as primary and interpersonal uh, interrelational unity is secondary. So systemic change is the most important thing that we do together. If we get along, if we have good friends, if you're my white kind of right, if you're my right kind of white, then we're good. But that's not really my goal here. I want to talk about how we defund the police. I want to talk about how we protest together. It ignores or downplays the trauma response of white learners. Oftentimes, when we do this work, because we're so focused on the systems, we're so focused on changing, of you doing the work, that we don't realize that doing the work inspires a trauma, it evokes a trauma response in you. That you are unlearning and you are undoing. That there is a necessity of love and community and connectedness as you begin to rebuild. And then the third problem is it creates obstacles for the church to be a witness of Christ-like love and unity. So I have been in a part of so many churches where we, do the, they, 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 we fully understand that we as, as a church wanting to be peacemakers, we're going to focus on the systemic aspect of it. But I've noticed that in those churches, there's a lot of um, just kind of mistrust, walking on eggshells when it comes to authentically talking about the pain across the board that we all are experiencing because of the lie of white supremacy. So the thing that I would want us to hold on from anti-racism though, is that it calls us to the grit of dismantling racism as we are committed to take up our cross. So we are committed to do the work, to live sacrificially. And I think when, when we focus on our work around this area primarily using anti-racism as our framework, we are really good at having a checklist and having a bookshelf filled with everything, listening to all the right people and doing all the right things, but oftentimes we're not in right relatedness with each other. We need a third way, a way that is defined by grit and grace. So the third way that I propose for us is anti-racism peacemaking. See, I would love for us to consider to be anti-racist, actively opposed to thoughts, beliefs, and actions that reinforce white supremacy. That's good. That is us taking up our cross and following Jesus who was fully human. But I would love for us to consider to be peacemakers. What does it look like to do this work as peacemakers as we actively oppose that as we are actively opposed to thoughts and beliefs and actions that reinforce oppression shame violence both in word deed and thought all in word deed and thought and here's the kicker lacks empathy for all of us in our full humanness what does it look like to do this work from a deeply empathic place so then we become i hope and what i've become is an anti-racism peacemaker, a person who actively works towards a holistic restoration of the interpersonal and systemic effects of white supremacy through nonviolence and empathy. This is how we take Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, and we live it out in our anti-racism work. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But then it goes on to verse 39 and says, And love your neighbor as yourself. See, you are saying it is good for me and this white body to move through the world made just as God made me. But it is not good that my brothers and sisters of color do not experience that as well. So I am now going to, from this place of of love and security, work to create spaces and opportunities of love and security for them. We are loved by God, and we love God with our heart, soul, and strength and mind. And from that overflow, we flow out, and we love our neighbor as we have loved ourselves. And then it gets even better. See, from this motion, from this, from this river of shalom, this river of peace, then we get to enter into these kind of sticky, messy places where we have these hard conversations, and we feel like, okay, wait, you just said something that straight up offended me. Like, I love my dash of salt. Like, what are you doing? And we, and we lose a little bit of empathy for them, which I define my enemy as a person who is just beyond my empathy. Then we get, to, we get to practice what Jesus invites us into in Luke 6, 27, 28. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you and your seasonings, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. You see, when we get to places in these conversations where we begin to lack empathy, we are called to, to, to tap into that flow of love and begin to love others who we may feel have offended us, who have overwhelmed us, who just don't get it. I think we have examples of this. And in closing, I want us to kind of look at this example that was set for us during the Civil Rights Movement. See, Dr. King had this peculiar idea as he was teaching, his as he was inviting people and in teaching his particular way of addressing the systemic brokenness of the world at that moment and holding oppressors and those who are, who are uh, leaders and, and, and facilitators of those oppressive systems, holding them accountable, he also helped the humanity of all the people who came to this work in tension with it. One of my favorite stories is he was marching and a a couple of white men just like got in his face and was screaming hateful words at him. And he turned to one of them and said, "You you are too good looking and too smart to have such hate in your heart. There is an intentionality in Dr. King of addressing systemic brokenness and loving the humanity of the person in front of us. And so Dr. King invites us into this idea of the beloved community. He says, the end is is reconciliation, the end is redemption, the end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opponents into friends. It is this type of understanding goodwill that will transform the deep gloom of the old age into the exuberant gladness of the new age. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of men and women. In his book about the beloved community, Charles Marsh goes on and explains the idea of the beloved community in this way. He says, King's concept of love was surely not the platitudinous all you need is love. It was rather the passion to make human life and social existence a parable of God's love for the world. It was agape the outrageous venture of loving the other without conditions, a risk and costly sacrifice, grit and grace, anti-racism, peacemaking. Parable of love and costly sacrifice. We need to do it both, y'all. So this is why when I came back from that trip, I walked around Como Lake several times just, just examining how I failed as a peacemaker and how I can do better. And I spent a lot of time studying Henry Nowen and his, his like incredible, just game-changing work around belovedness and realized that belovedness, rooting my anti-racism in belovedness, keeps all of those retributive anger and violence and mistrust, it keeps it all in check. You see, if I believe that I am beloved just as I am in this brown skin, in my social location, and I believe that you are beloved just as you are in your skin, in your social location, then we get to do something incredible. We get to do something that is transformative. We get to create a community of belovedness. Henry Nowen says, if it is true that we are not only are the beloved, but also have to become the beloved, if it is true that we not only are the children of God, but also have to become children of God, if all of this is true, how then can we get a grip on this process of becoming? If the spiritual life is not simply a way of being, but also a way of becoming, when then is the nature of this becoming? The nature of this becoming is when you, Genesis, decide that you are going to be a community of anti-racism peacemakers. And that you are going to be a community that owns your individual belovedness, but you don't stop there. You proclaim the belovedness of others. And then as a community, you, you resound belovedness in all the things you do, in the ways that you protest, in the ways that you show up, in the ways that you teach, in the ways that you eat. You get to become the beloved community. So as I close, I'm gonna share with you what I do whenever I teach anti-racism. Because I came back from that trip a couple of years ago and I still had the responsibility of teaching anti-racism and peacemaking. It's still part of my job and so I shifted everything. And so when I teach anti-racism, I begin and end my classes. The first class we say this and the last class we end with this. I invite them to extend their hands open as if they're receiving a gift. So I'm gonna invite you to do the same. And I say, we are becoming the beloved community, friends. So this is our covenant to each other, that we will say, I am beloved. And then we will say to each other, you are beloved. And then we accept this calling to be peacemakers and say, we are beloved. Thank you, beloveds. Amen. So now I'm going to um, invite us into a time of confession. So I know that a message that, like the one I just shared, triggers a lot of trauma responses in you and maybe triggers some beautiful and good conviction from the Holy Spirit in you. And so I want to hold this space to acknowledge that and invite the Spirit of the Lord to come and minister to us as we do this prayer, participate in this prayer of confession together. So uh, I believe that it's going to be on the screen behind us. I'm so sorry. Okay, no, it's okay. Is it in, is it in? Y'all are going y'all on it. No one is left behind. All right, I'm gonna read the leader. Please join me in the all. Oh Lord, it is tragic how poorly we reflect your love. How often we shrink from the inheritance of being your children, and how readily we shirk the responsibility to love as we have been loved. And so we ask it, in hope and in trust that your love, your perfect love, made human in Jesus Christ, who walked among us and knows every hair on our heads and every movement of our lives, speaks quietly to our troubled souls. Your words of life, I do not condemn you, go and sin no more.